fifth chapter of Hebrews, where we'll try to finish what we began this morning. I held true to my word for four chapters anyway, and I'm not very apologetic. There's too much relative to the priesthood of Christ to have tried to speed our way through the fifth chapter and not picked up the full importance and necessity of having a priest. Every religion, as I tried to point out this morning, whether it be the religion of God under the Old Testament, the religion of God before the flood, or whether it's the mystery religions of Babylon, or the religion of the Philistines under Dagon, or the religions of Egypt, they all required priests. One thing we can know for sure is that if you're religious and you're burdened about your soul and you have fear of death, you need a priest. Because a priest is a man chosen by God, theoretically, in pagan religions, actually, in God's religions, to intercede on your behalf to God. He offers gifts and sacrifices for sins according to this first verse. And every One that wants to approach God needs a priest. Adam and Eve, because they did not have a priest in the Garden of Eden, as soon as they sinned, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. They were in need of a priest. Because anyone who has an understanding of God realizes that without a priest to intercede on his behalf, he stands before the judgment seat of God where there is no mercy apart from gifts and sacrifices that are acceptable in his sight. He needs a priest. As we looked in the book of Genesis, we saw the priesthood of Abel. Abel offered gifts and sacrifices for himself and for his family. That's why it's called the patriarchal age of the Bible. We looked further at chapter 8 where we saw Noah building an altar and offering sacrifices after the flood. We know about Abraham. But we came to Genesis chapter 14 where we saw Abraham returning from the defeat of the four kings of Canaan. And out to meet him came a man named King of Salem by title, Melchizedek by name. And he offered sacrifices and blessed Abram and blessed the Most High God that had given Abraham the victory. And Abram paid him tithes of all. So we see a priesthood there before Aaron was chosen for the Levitical priesthood. Let me just mention a a little bit further about the fact that when it says king of Salem, we ought not to just skim over those words and wonder where Salem was. We found this morning in in Joshua chapter 10 that 500 years before David ever took the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites, there was a city under a king named Jerusalem. And that city lays near the Dead Sea, right in the line of Abraham, returning from Damascus back down to Hebron, where he was returning with all the goods he recaptured from the four kings. But in case I didn't prove it enough this morning, let me give you a few more points that ev- this evening, just to keep your minds thinking in that direction. When the Bible says king of Salem... And priest of Salem, obviously, he was the priest of the Most High God, and he lived in Salem, that this was indeed the Jerusalem where Jesus Christ himself was introduced as king and priest. Look at Joshua chapter 19. 
Joshua chapter 19. This is one of those verses in Scripture where the unbelieving textual critics of our day want to throw mud in the King James Version and where we stand up on our hind legs and fight them back. In Joshua chapter 19, and I'll remind you of it, we can chase rabbits once in a while. I don't want to make a practice of it or every one of the chapters from here on out will take two services instead of one. Joshua chapter 19, verse 2. And they had in their inheritance Beersheba, and Sheba, and Moladah, and Hazer Shul, and Bala, and Azam, and Eltalad, and Bethel, and Horma, and Ziklag, and Beth Markabath, and Hazer Susa, and Beth Lebeath, and Sheruan, thirteen cities and their villages. And brethren, if you take a five-year-old and ask him to add up those cities, it comes to fourteen, not thirteen. And if you find someone that doesn't like the King James Version, they'll be quick to point out that this is one of the many flaws in the King James Version, which we wholeheartedly deny. That if they'd ever read their Bible, instead of reading their textbooks on why the Dead Sea Scrolls are better than anything our forefathers had, they'd find out exactly how to use the Scriptures in Joshua 19. When we go over to 1 Chronicles... 1 Chronicles chapter 4 and verse 28, we have these 13 cities listed again. But there's one city missing. That city is Sheba. And if you look at Joshua 19, 2, and they had in their inheritance Beersheba and Sheba. The word and, as it's used in the King James Version, is not always a conjunction that means in addition or additionally. It many times is used as an explaining conjunction, such as when we read, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. Are we baptismal regenerations because it says and? Or do we believe when it says, except a man be born of water, we understand that to mean, except a man be born of water, even of the Spirit, where the word and is used as or, or as even. See, we've got a problem here. You deal with it, you have to deal with it. First Chronicles 4 explains it. Sheba is a shortened name of Beersheba. That's the point I'm trying to make. Sheba is the shortened name of Beersheba. And it's simply repeating a city one, once by its longer name and once by its shorter name. Because when you come over to First Chronicles chapter 4, you can clear it up. I did that to show you that cities are sometimes known by a long name, sometimes by a short name. And when we read in Genesis 14 that Melchizedek was king of Salem, let's remember that, that God can shorten names. And then come over to Psalm 76 and verse 2. Psalm 76 and verse 2, and if anyone shouts, I'll not accuse you of being a charismatic. Psalm 7, don't read ahead, brethren. That hurts. Hurts me. Psalm 76 and verse 1. In Judah is God known. Now what city was uh, in Judah? (laughs) His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is His tabernacle and His dwelling place in Zion. Now you don't need a Bible atlas. 
You don't need a whole lot of Bible dictionaries. All you need is Psalm 76 and verse 2 to find out where Salem's at. It's wherever God's tabernacle was located. And where was God's tabernacle located? What city did God choose among all the cities of Judah to place His name there and to be worshipped there? But the city of Jerusalem. And Melchizedek was king and priest of this city, Jerusalem. And Jesus Christ, yet to this day, after the order of Melchizedek, is king and priest of the heavenly Jerusalem. Now, I, I like that. Psalm 76, too, is a nice little verse to add to what we covered this morning. Back to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. The first three verses of Hebrews chapter 5 are setting forth what the believing Jews or the Hebrews understood well. For a priest to be effective, he must be able to offer gifts and sacrifices. This is verse 1 that God will accept. So he's got to have a relationship Godward. He also, because he's taken from among men, can relate to men as they come and confess their sins He needs to be compassed with infirmity in order to relate to men who are coming and confessing their sins. The Hebrew mind knew that because all the men of the tribe of Levi that were also the sons of Aaron, that were the priests under the Old Testament, they were called of God to be priests, so they had a relationship Godward. They had his temple and his altar whereby they could offer gifts and sacrifices God would take. But they also were compassed with infirmity, as verse 2 describes, so that they can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way. Those that sin through ignorance and those that sin presumptuously. Because a priest has done both. Priests that have been taken from among men. They can relate to God, they can relate to man. Paul knows the Jewish mind is going to be thinking of the glory of the Levitical priesthood. But he's already set Jesus Christ up in the last five verses of chapter 4 as being very God, when the Bible says, for the word of God is quick and powerful. That's not talking about the book in your hands. If you put that book down the floor, it's not going to move. It's not alive. The word of God that is alive and powerful is he who said, I am alive forevermore, and all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. That's the living word of God. Because it goes on to say in verse 13, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight. If it was talking about the Bible, it'd say, Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in its sight. And then in verse 14, it says, Seeing then. Well, where were we supposed to have seen it? In verses 12 and 13. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens. This priest is God. But yet, verse 15 tells us he was touched and tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. He is the perfect fulfillment of what a priest should be. He exceeds that of the Levitical priesthood, for he's God. And he was tempted in all points, but he didn't sin, so he doesn't need to offer sacrifices for his own sins. And Paul will get to that in a later chapter. Look back, though, in Job chapter 9. A verse that I, in my hurry this morning, just passed over. You know it. Most of you know it. It always is good to remember these things, though. Job understood 
what I spent 15 minutes trying to establish this morning, and that is that every religion needs a priest. That once you know there's a God, and once you know you're a sinner, there's an immediate demand for a priest to intercede on your behalf. And so it was with Job. Job chapter 9 and verse 32. Speaking of God, for he is not a man as I am. That's all the difference in the world right there. He is not a man as I am. If you were to deal with God directly, there is no mercy. The Bible says God cannot by any means acquit the wicked. Do you know what that means? He always has to punish sin. If you had to deal with God directly, the Bible tells us He will by no means clear the guilty. Several times He tells us that. Job knew that. Job said, For He is not a man as I am, that I should answer Him, and we should come together in judgment. What man wants to come together in judgment with the Almighty? Neither... Is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both? That is one of the most beautiful verses. A daysman, a mediator, a referee, a, me a priest. Someone who's able to reconcile two parties that are at each other. He's able to put a hand on both. How many times have you seen a school teacher break up two fighting boys Usually not on the head. Well, sometimes they grab the hair. But put their hands on their shoulders and make each boy face each other and reconcile. You know, kiss, hug, shake hands, whatever. My mother, I believe, used to make us peck each other on the cheek, my brother and I, when we'd finished a fight. But you know what that's talking about. A hand on each head that he might stand in the middle and be like a, an arbitration board and get these two parties reconciled. Job needed that. Job said, I can't stand before God. I don't want to enter into judgment with Him, and I don't have a daysman. Poor Job. It's too bad he didn't live in the New Testament, and he knew Hebrews chapter 5. We have that daysman. He is God, so he can definitely put his hand Godward, and he was made lower than the angels. He was made man and tempted in all points like as we are, he can definitely put his hand on man. Is that a daysman? Would you like to add anything to this daysman? Where is he falling short? The book of Hebrews is the superiority, the preeminence, the glory of Jesus Christ. What a daysman. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 3 tells us, and, and by reason hereof he ought... As for the people, so also for himself to offer for sins. Look at Leviticus chapter 4 and 3, keeping your finger at Hebrews 5. Leviticus chapter 4 and verse 3. Poor Aaron. You know, Aaron was looked up to by the entire nation to offer sacrifices for them, and yet Aaron had to do it for himself. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 3. If the priest that is anointed do sin according to the sin of the people then let him bring for his sin, which he hath sinned, a young bullock without blemish unto the Lord for a sin offering. And I could raise passages like that for a few minutes here if I chose to do so. Aaron 
And any high priest, if he had sinned, had to offer for his own sins. Jesus Christ is superior to that. Remember, Paul is dealing with believing Jews who are very tempted to go back under that Levitical priesthood because they're missing it. They know the importance of having a priest. And because they follow Jesus Christ, they lost the benefits of the Levitical priesthood. Paul's coming along and showing that Jesus Christ is superior to that Levitical priesthood. You don't need to worry about the Levitical priesthood. Let them go the way of the dinosaur. We've got something better here in Jesus Christ. Argument one. A priest must relate between God and man. Christ fills it perfectly. Argument two, the Hebrew mind will raise in verses four through six. He better be called of God. You know, the Hebrews are saying to themselves, well, this Jesus that we have followed and that you're telling us to continue to follow, he better be called of God because Aaron was called of God and Paul knows their argument. So he heads it off in verse four by saying, and no man taketh this Honor unto himself, but he that is called of God, as was Aaron this morning, we dealt with the call of the priesthood. God chose Aaron out of the sons of Levi. The rest of the Levites simply did the menial deacon type tasks around the tabernacle. It was the priests that went in and were actually involved in the worship of God. And they understood that no man took that office. They knew the story of Korah in number 16. They knew the story of the budding rod in Numbers 17. They knew what happened to Isaiah when he went in and offered incense on the altar and the leprosy rose up in his forehead. They knew that. And what their point is here, what Paul is heading off in verses 4 through 6, is the fact that Jesus Christ was called of God. Because they knew that a call existed to the sons of Aaron, and they knew that Jesus Christ was of the sons of David, Therefore, they knew he didn't have a Levitical call to the priesthood. Therefore, he must not be a real priest to a Jewish mind that's immature, ignorant, and fit for baby formula, as he's going to get to in verses 11 through 14. How does he head it off? He says in verses 5 and 6, So also Christ glorified not himself to be made an high priest. Jesus Christ did not come into this world to do his own will. He came into this world to do the will of his Father. Even when he knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Not my will. What was his will? That God, if it was possible, could find an alternative. Nevertheless, thy will be done. He did not take the glory to himself to be made in high priest. But, and here's the whole explanation, in the middle of verse 5, He, that is God, that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. That's in Psalm 2-7. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There is his call. He was not called to be a priest like Aaron. He was not called in the Levitical priesthood, but he did have a call. And his call was very definite. And the very God that said, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. That same God said, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And there's never been a man called more plainly than that. Psalm 110 in verse 4. So he was called. Now, can you imagine the poor Hebrews? Well, Jesus is a better priest. I see that point in the first three verses. That is a pretty strong call. I agree he wasn't from the tribe of Levi, but that's a pretty strong call when God can single a man out individually 
in Psalm 110 and verse 4 and say, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek was a very mysterious figure. They knew, about, they knew only about him what's recorded in Genesis 14, and that's rather thin. He was the king of Salem. He was the priest of the Most High God. And he offered sacrifices, and Abraham paid tithes to him. But now Paul takes up a third argument in verses 7 through 10 that these Hebrews would raise in their mind. A priest must be able to relate to God and man. A priest must have a call from God in order to be accepted. And a priest must have intercession, offerings, gifts, and pleadings to make before God to prove that God hears him. Now remember what the Jews remembered about Christ. Where was the last place they saw Jesus Christ other than about 550 of them? He was hanging on a cross. You say, well, they knew he was resurrected from the dead. Oh, yes, they did, and they were losing their confidence in that. They were about to go back under the Old Testament. That's why Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. And that's why the continual exhortation, let us hold fast our profession and our confidence steadfast unto the end. Because they were about to go back under that Old Testament law. The last time they had seen Christ was hanging on the cross when he was saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me, brethren? And an effective high priest does not say that and have it end there. Do you understand that? I mean, to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That means that God is no longer accepting that priest's intercession. So Paul goes right after it. In verse 7, the apostle says, Who? Speaking of Christ, after the order of Melchizedek, who in the days of his flesh. Now that is before he was glorified. Jesus Christ still has flesh at this hour. That's Your eyes will rest upon him when you see him in glory. But it's glorified flesh. He's no longer subject to the infirmities of that flesh like he was when he was here in the world. He was made of a woman, but now it's a glorified body that was made of a woman. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. What Paul is doing is he's going back to the crucifixion, showing that Jesus Christ did supplicate God, did pray to God, did pour out his tears and with strong crying prayed to the Lord, and God heard him. The point he's trying to make that this priest, yes, he's qualified, yes, he's called, he's also effectual. God did hear his prayer in the days of his flesh. Look at Mark chapter 14. Let's look at those, that strong crying and the prayers and supplications that Jesus Christ offered up. Mark chapter 14, beginning at verse 32. And they came to a place which was named Gethsemane, and he saith to his disciples, Sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter and James and John, and began to be sore amazed, and to be very heavy, and saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, 
unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what thou wilt. There was strong crying. Now you say to yourself, did God hear that prayer? If it be possible, take this hour away from me. If it's possible, can, is there another alternative? Nevertheless, thy will be done. Remember the prayer of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 8. He says, thrice I prayed that the Lord would take away a thorn in the flesh. Did the Lord hear that prayer? Indeed. Did he take away the thorn in the flesh? No. He simply gave him the grace to be able to take the thorn in the flesh. And look back now at Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. If that scene right there, Jesus crying for God to deliver him from that hour, if it was possible, doesn't bring home to your heart the fact that God, Jesus had his infirmities and that he suffered under tremendous weight of burdens, the baptism that he was to be baptized with and the cup he was to drink, I don't know what will in the word of God as he struggled with what he was to do. Did God hear his prayer? Luke chapter 22, beginning at verse 42. Here he is praying again, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground, praying more earnestly, but he was strengthened by divine assistance from the presence of God. Here we have in the union of Christ's human and divine nature, the divine nature upholding that human nature and yet that human nature suffering the burden of what it was facing. But the Lord did hear the prayer. Now, he didn't take the hour away. He didn't take the cup away. He didn't come up with an alternative plan, for there was no alternative. He simply gave the Lord Jesus Christ strength to go to the cross, and my, with what strength did he go? And he hung there and suffered, even his heavenly Father forsaking him, upheld, however, by divine strength, so that he could be a perfect sacrifice for us. Paul prayed thrice, the Lord heard his prayer, and gave him grace to bear the thorn. Jesus Christ prayed thrice here in the Garden of Gethsemane, and God heard his prayer. And that's the point that Paul is making here in the fifth chapter of Hebrews in verse 7, and was heard in that he feared, because he prayed according to the will of God. That's how you fear God. When you fall on your knees and you pray, you pray if the Lord will. If the Lord will, that's showing your fear of God, that you want His will over your will. And He was heard. Most important, remember, pretend you're a Hebrew. You want a priest that's effectual with God. This priest prayed to God, and God heard him. Verse 8, Though he were a son, 
Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now Jesus Christ was the only begotten Son of God, the very being that God spoke to from heaven when he was baptized, saying, This is my beloved Son. The very being that, he, that God spoke from heaven and shut Peter's mouth on the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter impulsively said, Let us build three tabernacles here, one for you and one for Moses and Elijah. And God said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And forget Moses and Elijah. That's not said, but that's implied. To shut Peter's vain idea. Peter knew who he was speaking to because he fell flat as if he was dead at the sound of that voice. And when you get over to Second Peter chapter 1, where Peter relates the event, he conveniently leaves that part of it out. He simply says, we heard his voice when we were with him in the Holy Mount. God's merciful, isn't he? When Peter had to write about that event, he left the confession out that Peter had the idea of building a tabernacle equal to Christ for Moses and Elijah. That's mercy. Jesus Christ gives us a perfect example of obedience. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. By obeying when it hurts. By obeying when it hurts, we please God. Obeying when it doesn't hurt proves nothing. If thou faint in the day of adversity, the Bible says thy strength is small. Obeying when it hurts is what proves a true disciple of Christ. And though he was God's son, he gave us an example. Look at 1 Peter with me to see that example. 1 Peter chapter 2. To obey when there's no pain is easy. To obey when there's simply blessings attached is easy. It's obeying when it hurts. When your feelings are against obeying. And how many times people say, well, I don't feel like doing this particular thing. Whether it's a husband and a wife who may be at odds with each other and they say, well, I just don't feel like I love them like I used to. Who cares what your feelings are? God said, love your wives to the husbands. And God said to the wives, to the husbands, love your wives. You were to love each other. It is something we do regardless of feelings. And if you do it, the feelings will come. That's the beauty. But perverse man, he says, well, as soon as I feel like it, I'll do it. You do it and God will give you the feelings. When the Bible says for those who are ministers to take the oversight thereof willingly, do they wait until they're willing to take the oversight? Or do they get willing as they take the oversight? When the Bible says he loves a cheerful giver, do you wait until you feel cheerful about giving? Or do you give and get cheerful? Do. Regardless of feelings, the feelings will follow if you obey. Look at this example here in 1 Peter chapter 2 of obedience when you don't feel like it. Verse 18, servants. Most of you are servants in the modern sense of that word, employees. Be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, that's easy, 
Even the publicans can, and sinners can do that. But also to the froward. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. That's what Jesus Christ did. Because of his conscience toward God, what God wanted him to do, he suffered wrongfully. Listen, when Pilate made the boast that he held Christ's life in his hand and Christ could have called 12 legions of angels, wouldn't you have been tempted to have done it? He suffered wrongfully and he endured that wrong grief. And you as employees are to do the same thing. This is true obedience. This is thankworthy. When you obey a good master, what do you want me to thank you for? What do you want God to thank you for? This is thankworthy according to the testimony of Scripture. If a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully, for what glory is it? When ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently. I mean, if you're docked a half a day's pay because you haven't been faithful on the job, what glory is it? On suffering for conscience sake. Well, bless your hearts. I speak as a fool. What glory is it if when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? But if when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, listen to this. This is acceptable with God. You want to find yourself acceptable with God? Look for that master on the job. It gives you a rough time. And be subject to him with all fear. That means all respect and all honor you can give him. I'm talk am I talking about something easy at the moment? This is the true measure of a man's faith and love toward Christ. If he can go after the relationship of authority that he does not like because he suffers wrongfully, but he is sub subject to that man with all fear, this is acceptable with God. And then look at verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called... Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. And it goes on to describe that it was the very same situation, suffering wrongfully. Suffering wrongfully. How many times do ministers hear wives come and a minister confronts a wife about the lack of submission in her life? And what does she raise but the fact that her husband has problems? Well, he did this. And he did that. And I just can't submit to that. There is a situation, women, where you can do something acceptable to God. When you are submissive to your husband, when he's being all that a husband should be, you haven't done anything worth glorying of, nor receiving any thanks from God. It's when he doesn't do the things you wish he would do that you are submissive to him. This is behavior acceptable to God. What children have perfect parents? It's when your parents aren't perfect and you go ahead and obey them anyway that you do something acceptable to God. Boy, he's a, he gets right down where the rubber meets the road and forces us to true obedience. That's the true measure. And Jesus Christ gave us that example in Hebrews chapter 5, though he were a son... Yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And brethren, though we are sons, God hasn't promised us 
a rose garden. Don't we have a song we sing very similar to that? God hasn't promised us a rose garden. He's promised us trials and afflictions to make us perfect. He learned obedience through suffering, and God has promised to bring suffering our way. And though we're the sons of God, He will bring affliction our way to test our faith. Faith cannot be tested without affliction. And Jesus Christ is the infinite epitome and example of that. Verse 9, And being made perfect, He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. Now in verse 7, Paul said, Jesus Christ was heard in that He feared. Where is the true fulfillment of being heard? Where is the true fulfillment of Christ's prayer and supplication and strong crying to God being heard? But in verse 9, and being made perfect. When was Jesus Christ made perfect? Don't say His birth. This is talk the resurrection. And being made perfect, He ascended up into heaven with a glorified body, and sat down at the right hand of God. Did God hear his prayer? Did God undertake for him, uphold him by his divine nature, and bear him through that suffering of death, and then raise him up at his right hand? Indeed, he was heard. What a priest. Why, the man they'd heard about hanging on a cross saying, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That same being is now sitting at God's right hand, being made perfect. He became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey Him. Salvation was not secure legally until Jesus Christ sat at the right hand of God and offered His blood. Jesus does not offer His blood to sinners. If Jesus offered His blood to sinners, we would all pour it out on the ground and walk over it. There's too many Christians who do that anyway. According to Hebrews 10 29, they count the blood of the covenant an unholy thing and do despite unto the Spirit of grace and trod the Son of God underfoot. Hebrews 10 29. Jesus never offered His blood to sinners, but Jesus did offer His blood. To whom did Jesus offer His blood? Turn over to Hebrews chapter 9. Oh, this is so good. There are so many men who want to take Jesus Christ, drag Him down in the gutter, and offer Him, and offer His blood to those who have no use for it. Verse 12, speaking of Christ, look at verse 11, but Christ being come and high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building. Verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Now, did Jesus Christ obtain eternal redemption when he entered into the holy place, or did he not? If he did, then there is no blood to be offered to sinners. That blood was offered once to God. And brethren, when I read Isaiah 53, it says, He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And he sat down. And what does it mean when he sat down? 
the work was over. And that's why we can read in the third verse of chapter 1, when he had by himself purged our sins, because he entered with his own blood and offered it to God and it was accepted, and eternal redemption legally considered was complete. Amen. You weren't even here 2,000 years later, but you were already legally saved. You were already legally redeemed. And there was nothing to be done to add to that. Come back to Hebrews chapter 5. Being made perfect there at the right hand of the majesty on high, he became the author of eternal salvation. Now that the legal basis for salvation was accomplished, what does he do next? But John chapter 5 and verse 25, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. He becomes the author of eternal salvation when he calls his sheep by name and regenerates them. And that isn't my name calling, and that isn't my preaching. That is by the voice of the Son of God. He becomes the author of eternal salvation. And we've been over that so many times before, you know it inside and out. It's good to go over it, though, but we need to move on to the second part of this verse. Oh, the Campbellites love to get you into Hebrews 5, 9 and rub your faces in it. Oh, they look at Hebrews 5, 9 and they read it. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. And they say, see, if you want the effects of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus You've got to obey, and you've got to obey perfectly unto the end. What a system of works. I mean, at least the Jews had priests. But that's the church of Christ for you. And Hebrews 5, 9 is one of their favorite texts when it comes to works salvation. Well, what is the text stating? First of all, it's always important to answer contextual questions. To whom is Paul writing? Sinners at the local pub or believing Jews who have already professed faith in Christ, who already believe on Christ, who have already obeyed Christ, who have already suffered for the cause of Christ. And what he is trying to do is motivate them to further obedience. And so he describes the evidence, not the condition, but the evidence of those Jesus Christ is the author of eternal salvation unto. And he being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Look at Romans 5.19. Romans 5.19. Now is there a condition to be made righteous and to obtain eternal salvation by your obedience? If there is, then we have salvation by works. We have grace by works, and you can't even say that in the same sentence without violating language. Grace by works. But that's what some would have us believe. Romans chapter 5 and verse 19 ought to settle it. Here is how he became the author. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, you all know how you became sinners legally, by the disobedience of Adam. It didn't matter whether you believed there was an Adam. Madam O'Hare is a sinner by the disobedience of Adam, whether she believes the account of Genesis chapter 2 and 3 or not. That's how we became sinners. You don't have to know about Adam. Believe Adam. 
or sin yourself, as long as you are related to Adam, you are a sinner, legally imputed. You say, what about Christ? He wasn't a sinner. And I say unto you, by the infinite wisdom of God, he wasn't related to Adam either. Because he didn't have a human father. Romans 5.19 For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Now, my children, when they hit about the age of two, are able to understand this text. Aren't yours? When the Bible says that we are made righteous by the obedience of one, does that mean we are made righteous by the obedience of two? And if eternal salvation is dependent upon your obedience, then our eternal salvation, our righteousness is by the obedience of two. It's by the obedience of Christ and it's by your obedience. And the Bible says it's by the obedience of one that we are made righteous. I love Romans 5.19. Remember that verse. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 9. Being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Remember Paul's purpose, and the verse should be plain. He is trying to motivate these Hebrews to continued obedience. And what better way to do it than to describe the evidence of those that Jesus Christ is the author of eternal salvation unto as those who are obedient. Maybe John will help you by looking at John using the same way of reasoning. Look at Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. I don't have time tonight to preach a sermon on salvation problem text. Revelation chapter 2. He's writing to a church. What's a church made up of? But those who have are already recipients of eternal salvation. Those who are sanctified. That's why they're saints. That's why they're in a church relationship. Revelation 2, 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now notice the statement. Is that a conditional statement? If you want to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God, do you have to overcome? Or is the Apostle John laying out before you a promise already made, but a promise you can be assured of by overcoming? A promise being held out in front of you in order to motivate you to overcome. Now, brethren, we have an option. We can either make the Bible con contradict itself everywhere we turn, when it says in one place salvation is by grace without works, or we can see all the works here in the, in the second and third chapter of Revelation and have a contradiction, or we understand that John is simply holding out promises already in existence in order to motivate to overcomers. Look at verse 11. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith in the churches. He that overcometh shall not be heard of the second death. Brethren, I thought salvation from the second death was by the voice of the Son of God. According to the first resurrection, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 6. The, rev the resurrection of John 5 and 25. You mean I've got to overcome to save myself from the second death? Or am I going to overcome at the... Am I going to be saved from the second death at the last day when a book is opened called the book of life and my name is found written there? 
Notice the reasoning. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. That's a true statement. Because anyone that overcomes is simply giving evidence of those who shall be saved from the second death. And he's holding out that promise to motivate you to overcome. And he does it over and over in this book. Look at verse 17. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith in the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the hidden manna, and will give him a white stone, and in the stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Look at verse 26. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end. Now do we believe in salvation by works? No. Verse 26. He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. This is holding out the promise of God to those who want assurance by bringing forth the proper evidence. It's a motivational way of presenting a promise. Look at chapter 3. See if this doesn't help clear up a verse that confuses a lot. Verse 5, He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. God will never blot anyone out of his book of life. Nowhere in the Bible does it teach that. and It doesn't teach it in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. He is simply stating a fact and trying to motivate people to obedience and to be overcomers by a future promise. It's not a condition. We don't keep God's works under the end to avoid having our names blotted out of the book of life, or else we've got a system of salvation by works. Obedience. Obedience is the evidence of eternal life. And when the Bible says in Hebrews 5, 9, that he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, Paul is bringing forth that evidence and using it to motivate these Hebrews to further obedience. When the Bible says give diligence to make your calling and election sure, you don't make your calling and election a fact. You make it sure here. I mean, in the first epistle of Peter, Paul described the election that's in Christ Jesus. In the second epistle, he describes the eight things we have to add to our faith, virtue, knowledge, brotherly kindness, and so forth in order to make our calling and election sure. And if you want to make sure that Jesus Christ is the author of eternal salvation unto you poor Hebrews, Paul is teaching, you need to be obedient. Just like John taught, if you want to find your name written in the book of life and not have God blotted out, he doesn't say he will, and not have God blotted out, you have to overcome. You need to overcome. And it's a motivation to our obedience. Verse 10, Hebrews 5 and verse 10, called of God, and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verses 1 through 3. Jesus Christ is able to relate to God and to man. He is God. He was tempted in all points like as we are so he can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way. Verses 4 through 6. Just as Aaron and all the high priests after Aaron were specifically called by God, so Jesus Christ was called by God, when God said, Thou art a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. 
And as Aaron and the other priests would intercede to God for the people of Israel and they were heard, so Jesus Christ interceded in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross and he was heard and God made him perfect and he sat down at God's right hand and became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Verses 11 through 14. Paul leaves the subject of Christ's priesthood in chapter 5 and verse 10, and he picks it up again in chapter 7, verse 1. He mentions it in verse 20 of chapter 6, just ending that chapter and then going into chapter 7. But we've got a rather lengthy interruption here by the apostle. What Paul has done from one one, from Hebrews chapter one and verse one all the way to Hebrews five and verse ten is to lay forth some very elementary facts about Jesus Christ. If you really think about it, they've been elementary facts. The logical connection is the most amazing thing of the five chapters. Seeing how Paul builds his case to convince these Jews they ought not to go back under the Old Testament. Having laid all these elementary facts, he now decides it's time to blast these ignorant Hebrews for the thought of going back and for the need of hearing the elementary facts over again. And it's very effective in persuasion that while you're persuading someone to try to convince them that because they're not catching on quickly, they're not very smart, Ever tried that? And it's an effective form of persuasion because it immediately puts them on the defensive. Well, I better pay attention here. It must be right. Maybe I am not very smart and I should listen and agree with what's being said. Paul does that right here. He stops, called of God after the order of Melchizedek, and he says in verse 11, of whom? Now that whom there isn't so much Melchizedek as it is Christ, who is the high priest mentioned in verse 10. Because when we go on, Paul doesn't say much about Melchizedek. A few things, but who he really deals with in chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 is Jesus Christ, the great high priest, which is the subject of the previous verses. Of whom, that is of Jesus Christ, we have many things to say. And hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. The rest of the book of Hebrews is not hard. The rest of the book of Hebrews is not hard to preach. And it wasn't hard for Paul to write, except for the fact he was writing to some ignorant Christians. Seeing ye are dull of hearing. They made it hard. The gospel is simple, brethren. The gospel is simple. Whenever it's, it doesn't appear simple to you, it's not the gospel's fault. It's your fault. The Bible tells us this in Proverbs 8 and verse 9. It is all plain to him that understandeth. You say, well, that's not very comforting. Well, if you'll get some understanding, it is all plain. It's confusing to those who don't understand. And understanding is a process of growth. And what Paul is going to do now is ridicule them with some names for not having grown faster than they should have. 
He's presented Jesus simply so far. Deity in chapter 1. Humanity and humiliation in chapter 2. The rest that the Israelites in the wilderness missed in chapter 3. The rest that's left us in the New Testament gospel age in chapter 4. The great high priest that has passed into the heavenly places in the last part of chapter 4. And the fact that Christ is a great high priest and He's called of God in chapter 5. Those are all simple facts. When we go forward into chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10, we are going to see the fulfillment of specific Old Testament types. It's more complicated. If he has to belabor the fact that Jesus Christ is God, and the reason why Jesus Christ became flesh in order to die, if he's had to labor those points, poor Paul. Can you imagine him wanting to preach on the priesthood of Christ and being stymied with an ignorant congregation? There is nothing more frustrating for a minister than to be held back by the fact that he knows his congregation is not picking up what he's preaching. If you've ever been a school teacher, you know how frustrating that is. When you've got to slow down and you can't give them what you want to give them. We know that that's true with our children. When we could give them so much, but they're dull of hearing. And they make it hard to be uttered. Now Paul's going to go on and utter some things hard to be uttered. Because this interruption doesn't last forever. Notice in chapter 6, he says in verse 1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. He says, even though you people are babies, and you need to hear all the elementary facts over again, I'm going to leave those principles of Christ and go on unto perfection. Because look what he says in verse 3. And this will we do if God permit. And he does. Chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. But poor Paul, you know Elihu over there in Job chapter 32, when Elihu finally cut forth with the only wise advice in the whole book of Job, he said that he was like a, a bottle of wine ready to burst. He was so full after having listened to four idiots communicate back and forth between themselves about why God was doing this to me, and I say that it's deserved. God spoke the same way when he got to the last chapter of that book. And Elihu called them fools. All of them. Job speaketh foolishly. But he said he was like a bottle ready to burst. He had all this welled up with them and finally he said, old men are not always wise. And he let go. And the youngster cut loose. Here's Paul. Paul was trained in Judaism. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees and no one knew Christ better than Paul. Paul knew that if they could give him an audience, he could convince them from their own scriptures that Jesus Christ ought to be followed. Can you imagine the burden he bore? Brethren, I could wish myself accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's the burden he had. And here he finally gets fed up with the fact he, he's been going over elementary facts. They should have known this when they were converted. And these people have been converted for years. And he has to repeat proofs of the deity of Christ. What can we say about anyone who leaves a church that teaches the deity of Christ to go join the Jehovah's Witnesses? You can call them infants, that's for sure. They're infants. These are the elementary facts of our faith. He desires to go further, but he can't because of their ignorance. 
And he goes further. Remember, Peter said that Paul wrote to us some things difficult and hard to be understood. That's in chapter 7 through 10. We haven't found anything yet hard to understand. Look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Brethren, it wasn't only the Hebrews that gave Paul fits this way. Let's get the Gentiles stuck in here. Paul called names when calling names was necessary. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 1. And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. For ye are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? Same problem. Here's a church. Paul wants to preach some meat to them. He has to keep going back over the basics because they don't catch on. They're not fast learners. They're carnal. They're still envying and striving one with another. I'm of Paul. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Apollos. And yes, I'm being sarcastic. Don't you think Paul is? I have fed you with milk, you babies. Let me point out that if there's a charismatic church in the New Testament... It's the Corinthian church. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. Paul said in verse 4, I thank my God always on your behalf. And he lists several things that he's thankful for. And look at verse 7. So that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The church at Corinth could have been called the Evangel Temple, like the one over in Spartanburg is. They had all the gifts. Now, the one over in Evangel Temple doesn't have a gift of the Spirit of God. They've got, quote, gifts, unquote. You know where their gifts can come from. They have gifts. This church had the gifts, but they were only fit for milk. And if you ever run into a charismatic brethren, get down to the milk because they won't be able to handle anything deeper than Mary was the mother of Jesus and Jesus is the Son of God. And you say, well, that's a good place to start. Paul would agree. But Paul would say after a year, you ought to be a whole lot farther along. Pitifully weak. A lot of feeling, a lot of superficial religion, a lot of gifts, but no real understanding. Hebrews chapter 5. Of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. They haven't used the means God's given them to understand more. The gospel of Christ is simple. You know, Paul warned in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, I fear, lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity, simplicity of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 11, 3, the gospel is simple. Whenever you hear a gospel that sounds complex, Beware, brethren. Paul warned of that in Colossians chapter 2 when he said, Beware of vain tradition and philosophy and the entering into of things further over there in Colossians chapter 2 and intruding into those things which he hath not seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. The gospel is simple. And when it gets complex, there's something wrong. It's simple. 
Paul wants to say so much and it's hard for him to get it out because he's looking at a congregation of people who haven't applied themselves. He's not looking, but he's writing. You understand what I mean. Verse 12. For, here's what it means that they're dull of hearing. For, when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. And there become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. You're babies. You need milk. You can't even take strong meat. You don't even have your teeth in yet. You haven't cut teeth yet to be able to chew strong meat. Still need to feed you with a bottle. When for the time. And here's a point I want to make. Paul is introducing here Christian maturity. And it is a function of time. So many people want to cop out it's a function of gifts. Well, God just didn't give me much of a gift for understanding the Bible. You're copying out. Paul would say, you're a baby. Paul would say, when for the time ye ought to be teachers. These Hebrews, having known the Old Testament system, having heard Christ preached for years, should have been able to teach others these elementary principles of the faith. Instead, Paul has to come along and waste his time doing it when he'd like to jump right in and give them some meat and feed them meat. He has to build it all over again. When for the time ye ought to be teachers. Time is a sufficient factor to justify growth. Why do you think Paul said in Ephesians 5 and verse 16 that we ought to redeem the time? God has given us a certain amount of time. Are you using it wisely in learning His Word? What's the principal thing for you to be using your time toward? According to Proverbs 4, 7, if you need a hint. Wisdom. Solomon wrote Proverbs 4, 7, Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom. And with all thy getting, get understanding. What is the principal thing for you to try to obtain in this life? Wisdom and understanding. With all thy getting... Get understanding. Wisdom is the principal thing. Do those words mean anything to you? The time God has allotted us should be used in pursuing wisdom. Look at Proverbs chapter 18. Proverbs chapter 18, I know. I know you're too busy. You're too busy. We're all too busy. That's the curse of the 20th century. We're too busy. We have more labor-saving devices than our grandparents could have dreamed about. But all we do is add more burdens to ourselves, running to and fro in all the activities of our modern civilization. Proverbs chapter 18, verse 1, Through desire, a man, having separated himself, seeketh and intermeddleth with all wisdom. If you've got desire, you can do it. You know what you have to do? Separate yourself. That doesn't mean separate yourself from the world. That means separate yourself from some of your activities. We get to, that is T-double-O, busy. Oh, how often have God's ministers got frustrated with a congregation? Look at Numbers chapter 11. I'm running out of time. I'm getting burned in the second sermon from the fifth chapter. Numbers chapter 11, 
Here's Moses complaining. Why, I can show you in the Old Testament. I can show you in the New Testament. I can show you Jesus Christ. I can show you Solomon speaking for wisdom. Numbers chapter 11, verse 11. Now the people are weeping, poor Israelites. They're weeping in chapter, in, in chap, in verse 10 of chapter 11. In verse 11, Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore hast thou afflicted thy servant? And wherefore have I not found favor in thy sight, that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? Have I conceived all this people? Have I begotten them, that thou shouldest say unto me, Carry them in thy bosom, as a nursing father beareth the sucking child, unto the land which thou swearest unto their fathers. And Moses goes on to complain of the fact he's got a bunch of babies. He's got a congregation of babies he has to carry along like sucking children. He says, God, what have I done to deserve this? Ever felt that way? Moses felt that way. You're in good company. But this is a rebuke to Hebrew Christians. Look at Proverbs chapter 1, verse 22. Listen to the frustration coming through. There's many passages. I just want to show you a few. Proverbs 1, 22. You heard Paul's frustration at Corinth. We're now studying his frustration with the Hebrews. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 22. Wisdom cries out, How long, ye simple ones, will ye love simplicity? And the scorners delight in their scorning, and fools hate knowledge. How long do we have to keep teaching some of the same things? Brethren, in the last four years, and let's bring it home. Listen, we don't just want to worry about those Hebrews, do we? I have preached you information from the Word of God regarding a number of areas of your practical lives, your marriages, your children, your economics, your prayer lives. And how many more other things? All you need to do is look at the index of all we've covered in the last four years. How long, ye simple ones, will you love simplicity? You're not all simple. But how long will you keep failing the elementary facts? Paul is introducing Christian maturity. With time, you ought to grow up. With time, you ought to be teachers helping one another and not have to have the pastor bail out people on elementary disobedience. Back to, let's get a statement of Jesus Christ with his frustration. Look at Matthew seventeen seventeen. Oh, Jesus suffered with the same thing. Matthew seventeen seventeen. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I suffer you? Bring him hither to me. Here was that little boy, demon-possessed. The disciples couldn't cast the demon out. Listen to Jesus Christ's frustration with the ignorance, not of the Pharisees, brethren, but of his own disciples. How long do I have to put up with you? How long do I have to suffer this kind of ignorance? Is what Jesus Christ is saying here. 
And those words were to His own disciples. Brethren, the Gospel is designed to bring growth. We read in Proverbs 4.18, The path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, Desire the sincere milk of the Word that she may grow thereby. And if you're, if you're using milk to grow, that means you're going to be using meat shortly. Look at Isaiah 28. How many times do we turn to Isaiah chapter 28 to prove how the Bible ought to be studied when it says here a little, there a little, line upon line, line upon line, precept upon precept, precept upon precept. But before it says all of that, it says this in verse 9. Isaiah 28, verse 9, Whom shall he teach knowledge? And whom shall be made to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast. Using the here a little and there a little method of Bible study, a minister is going to blow right beyond the congregation that will not wean itself. And by weaning itself, it means applying the means God has given for you to learn this book yourself so that we can go forward. Paul had to deal with that. Oh, the, the Apostle Peter wrote there in that first chapter of Second Peter, he said, add to your faith virtue. Add, 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 add. Eight times he says add because he wants eight things added. You're to be adding things, growing and increasing. But how many of you can look at where you're at today, compare yourself to six months ago, compare yourself to a year ago, compare yourself to four years ago, have you grown? How much have you grown? The Bible says that the righteous ought to be a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. You ought to be a tree of life, not winning souls. You understand what that means? That's in the spirit of James 5, 19 and 20. That when you see a brother in sin, you ought to be able to convert him from the error of his way and save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. You ought to be a tree of life. People ought to be able to come up to you and pluck life. That is an eternal life. That's life in this world, wisdom on how to live. They ought to be able to get advice from you on how to do things better than they're doing them. The righteous are a tree of life. Paul said you ought to be teachers. Same thing. Hebrews chapter 5. For every one, verse 13... For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. How many of you could stand and explain the doctrine of the sonship of Jesus Christ? That's an elementary fact of our faith. You see, that sound, that's pretty complicated, isn't it? It's, it's this complicated. Jesus is the Son of God. And all Protestant denominations and the Roman Catholics don't believe that. It's that simple. They believe that the second person in the Trinity is the Son of God instead of Jesus of Nazareth being the Son of God. We do not believe in the eternal generation of the Son. There's a point of doctrine. How many of you could teach others about the Sonship of Christ? I've been over it before. I don't need to review it right now. Could you do it? Could you turn to Bible verses and show someone the true identity of the Son of God? 
if you can't, why can't you? That's one of the fundamental facts, the elementary facts of our faith. Jesus Christ, being the Son of God, is our faith. You ought to be teachers. Men, you're to be teachers of your wives and your children. Women, you're to be teachers of the younger women and of your children. You have teaching responsibilities. Why doesn't spiritual growth occur in everyone? Why don't they become skillful in the word of righteousness? Because they're carnal, Paul said in 1 Corinthians. Because they're proud, according to Psalm 10 and verse 4. The wicked, through the pride of his countenance, will not seek after God. He likes things his own way. The Bible says stubbornness. 2 Peter 3, 5, some are willfully ignorant. They want to believe it their way, so they're willfully ignorant. They don't grow. Jews that love the Old Testament system of worship, we're going to find it very difficult to accept the book of Hebrews. Willfully ignorant. Evil communications, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. When we apply that to the friends of our children, we're not applying it in its primary application. Its primary application is not learning sound doctrine. Because 1 Corinthians 15.33 is dealing with those of the church at Corinth who were denying the resurrection from the dead. Be not deceived. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Why aren't some of you making more progress? Whatever communications you're opening yourself up to during the week, it's not supporting what you hear here. Here. H-E-A-R-H-E-R-E. The Bible says that in the last days men will heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, ever learning, never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. We've got a whole lot of teachers out there. You can get them through books, magazines, seminars, tapes, videotapes, radio programs, television programs. You can listen to them all day long and I'll tell you where you'll end up. Following fables and vain jangling and not learning the truth never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. The Bible says a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. That's Galatians 5, 9. That's doctrine. You let a little error live in your life doctrinally, it will leaven your understanding. It's a lack of study. While we, we exercise ourselves physically many times, more faithfully than we exercise ourselves in godliness, Paul wants us to exercise our senses so that we can be skillful in the word of righteousness. Verse 14, Strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age. Full age. They're adults. They're grown up. They're able to eat meat. You know, when I read strong meat, I think of hard Italian sausage. That's about the strongest meat you can get. It's hard to cut. It's hard to chew. And when it hits your taste buds, it's hard to them also. It's good, but it's strong meat. Now, you couldn't give a baby a piece of Italian sausage. He'd choke to death on it. But I don't know very many of you that want to drink baby formula either. To each his own. Babies need milk. Adults, those that are of full age, Christian maturity, are ready for strong meat. The elementary basics of our faith should be ingrained in their minds so that they could teach them to others. And we ought to be able to plow on into the rest of the book of Hebrews, which we shall do if the Lord will, just like Paul said in chapter 6 and verse 3. 
Strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. This is my final point. I have preached a series of messages to you called the mind of the Lord. Do you remember? We have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16. That is such a glorious thought, it is almost too much to comprehend. If we will apply ourselves, we can all think like one another, and we can all be thinking like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Bible says over and over, New Testament churches ought to be of one mind. And what mind is that? It is the mind of Christ. We ought to be able to discern the things that God has revealed in His Word. But the only way you can have your senses sufficiently improved to be able to judge between good and evil in child training methods, in marital problems, in sexual questions, in matters of prayer, in financial matters in your home, in doctrinal matters pertaining to Christ, the only way you can get to that ability is to exercise by reason of use. By reason of use. How many of you have ever seen a coin grater? Numismatic coins are one of the trickiest investments. I hope no one in here ever gets involved in them. If you ever get involved in numismatic coins, invest in proofs. There's less debate about proofs. If you go, I had a call from New York just a few weeks ago. Somebody trying to sell me some 1889 silver dollars. Oh, they're worth $1,200. We'll sell them to you for 900 bucks a piece. Silver dollars. Well, now you go look at a grading sheet. There isn't a person in this room that could tell the difference between an MS-65 and an MS-60. Those are grading scheme all the way up to MS-70. You couldn't tell the difference between an MS-65 and an MS-60. An MS-65 is worth $1,200. An MS-64 is worth $55. An MS-63 is worth $20. You want to play in that game? It takes the sweatshops of New York to sucker Americans into that game. But you find me a coin grader. He can tell a 63 from a 64 from a 65. Now that's this sense, sight. He can look at that coin, usually without even a magnifying glass, and he knows what it is. He looks at every little strand of hair to see how it's worn. Why do you think they put that lady on there? That lady's there to make sure the true weight of the coin is there, because if the coin's been worn, you won't see the lady. And if you don't see the lady, it's not a full ounce. That's why it's there. That's a coin greater. What about a piano tuner? Ever seen a piano tuner at work? Amazing, aren't they? Just cock their head and they can tune a piano. Listen, I'd need a machine to do it. Or I'd need a piano tuner. Let's be realistic. A piano tuner has tuned his ear so well he can hear even very slight differences off of the true tone that each note ought to give. How does he learn that? by reason of use. A coin grader. He's looked at so many coins, he knows what they are by reason of use. 
How about food tasters, wine tasters? You know, I can't tell the difference between two or three different types of wine. My, I don't like any of it. How do some of those wine tasters go through a tasting show and try ten different glasses and describe in their pretty language all the different bouquets they tasted? Isn't that a, that's a, an ability that's, that's obtained by reason of use. Some of you that have worked in plants, you have there those who have exercised this sense of touch. Now, we, knew, we know that the blind do it, but they're quality control checkers. You ever seen a fruit processing plant or a food processing plant where someone's checking food with their fingers, just quickly checking food visually and with their hands to make sure that it's right? It's by reason of use. And so it is with the Word of God. Here he's referring to senses, but I'm, we're not talking about physical senses tonight. We're talking about spiritual senses. When you see something go on in your home, you know that it's wrong, and you know what ought to be done to correct it. How do you get that wisdom? By reason of use, saturating yourself with the Word of God and applying it over and over again. But how many times do we just let our problems overcome us, get discouraged, instead of facing them head on, searching the Bible for an answer, and then implementing that answer? If you do that enough, it will feed on itself to where in old age, in older age, we should be able to give Bible answers for men's dilemmas. There is no problem that faces anyone in the 20th century that we can't find an answer for it in the Bible. But we need to be skillful in the word of righteousness. What are you doing with it? Are you reading it every day? Are you meditating upon it? Are you applying it? Do you take current social issues and run them through the word of God? Do you review what you've been taught over the last four years? Do you teach that in turn to your children? Do you talk of it with your wife? Do you think about these matters and reflect on how the word of God is an answer to us by reason of use? If you don't do that, you're not going to mature. You're not going to grow up. You're going to continue to have problems and not know how to deal with them. You're going to be what Paul would call babies. And you're going to get lost as we go further. You may be lost now. You may not even understand where I'm coming from on some subjects. You need to learn this book. Strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even to them that by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. We live in a generation where most Christians cannot discern between doctrinal good and doctrinal evil and between practical good and practical evil. They're babes. Are we going to be like them? Or are we going to buckle down and exalt this book to its proper place in our lives? This is an interruption in the book of Hebrews. He left the priesthood of Christ. He rebukes us all for not using our time more wisely to be skillful in the word of righteousness. What are you going to do about it this week? To learn this book and how to use it in your life. May God bless us to use it better than we have in the past.